Well, I'm actually going to come down on the ground. I'm going to make this total family style here. <clears throat> come on down, and I'm going to sit down um, just because I never get to do that. Lucky me. Um, well, good morning. Good morning. It's great to be together. You know, <clears throat> so often um, church can be an easy thing or the gathering of God's people can be an easy thing to fit into our schedules, and sometimes it's hard. And so thanks for making this a priority, and I know not everybody feels safe on the roads, but for those of you who are able to make it this morning, I really appreciate it. This is, this is a gift to be together, isn't it? A gift to be remembered of the, to, to remember the gospel together, a gift um, to encourage one another in the faith before we head back out into our weeks, to the various vocations and callings to which God has called us. Um, so let's enjoy this gift together, okay? Let me start just by praying. Uh, God, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for your word, and thank you that as the people of God, we long to know the word of God. Make us more people of the book. May we hear, may we see the truth in all its beauty, and so see Christ. May we follow him more faithfully, and so find fulfillment and joy. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Well, I hope you know that we long to be the kind of community where um, questions are not just safe to ask, but are really encouraged, right? A place where we can be uh, transparent about our doubts, curious about our faith, bold with our questions. Um, and that's because, because we believe that questions are absolutely crucial to growing in the understanding of our faith, right? You can't grow unless you have a level of curiosity and you're asking questions. And I think we're on the right track as a church. It was a while ago that Allie and I, we invited a friend of ours to come uh, here to church. She was an artist and uh, one of the things she told me was how welcome she felt, how she wasn't judged when she asked questions about who God is and, and about what Jesus did and, and how she felt genuinely safe to be honest about her, her questions and her wrestlings, unlike actually when she brought up the very notion that the Christian God might be a reality with some of her other artist friends who were very angry at her at the very notion that she would ponder that thought. So she, but that's not what the church is supposed to be. The church is one of the, the last bastions for free speech, one of the last places, really, where we can be honest and transparent as we seek the truth together. And I say that because at this point, I've sat across the table from a lot of people, both religious skeptics and religious zealots alike, and, and have heard questions about, about faith, about life, about the church, about Jesus. And, and amidst all that, I've come to see that questions aren't always questions. Questions aren't always questions. You see, just because you asked questions doesn't mean you're looking for what's true about the way the world works. Just because you ask questions doesn't mean you're looking for what's good in the world. Just, just because you ask questions doesn't mean you're hungry for what's beautiful around the world. Questions aren't always about finding answers. And, and if you've ever been to a community forum where they open the floor for questions, <laughs> then you know what I mean. It's hard to, to hide these accusations with thinly veiled questions, right? 
how do you think we can? Is, you know, like one of the questions that pops up. Or who do you think you are? You know, like those sound like questions. But for some reason, you know they aren't questions. Questions aren't always questions. You know, another, another way this kind of works itself out in our lives is you're about to go on that date and you have that friend who comes up to you and what do they say? You aren't going to wear that, are you? Right? Like that's a, that's a question that isn't really a question. Um, it, those aren't genuine questions. And, and the first time this really hit home for me was when I was in college. There was a political, political group that was traveling to different Christian universities where I attended and uh, challenging the policies on human sexuality that different Christian universities held. And everywhere they went, they drew the press. And I remember I was on student government at the time. I was the liaison uh, between all the different colleges, actually, in that area in the Midwest on student government. And we had this whole briefing on how to navigate questions with hidden agendas, right? So beware questions that oversimplify the answer to a mere either-or seeking to pigeonhole your direction. Beware questions that are looking for those sound bites, right? So, so be short, be to the point. Um, why? Because questions aren't always questions. They're not always after an answer. Sometimes questions are just about affirming what? My agenda, my answer, what I want. And that's it, isn't it? it it's, it's one thing, and I, I'm, one, I'm one to believe really that questions are rarely bad. Most of the time, questions are really pursuing and seeking to know, but, but, but we need to understand this. If we're really curious, there's always a question behind every question. I know, we're getting a little meta here, but hang with me. The question behind every question is, do you want the truth or something less? The question behind every question is, is do you want the truth or something less. Maybe another way to ask this is, do you want to know the way the world actually works, even if it's going to rock your world? Do you want to know what's good, even if it condemns what you desire? Do you want to know what's beautiful, even if that beauty then proclaims that some of the things that we love to do are grotesque? Do you want truth or something less? That's the question behind every question, the true longing, I think, of everyone who's curious about the truth. And I know, listen, that's easier to ask than to actually answer. I mean, what we find ourselves this week with MLK on Monday and a new president on Friday. And <clears throat> out of all these two events, they reveal that we are more divided than ever as people. Um, more divided when it comes to race, when it comes to economics, when it comes to sex, when it comes to politics. And as we become more polarized, certain things happen to who we are as people. That we become more convinced of our perspectives as we become more polarized. We become more entrenched in our ideologies. We tend to become more immersed in our agendas. And without even realizing it most of the time, we come to Jesus, yes, Jesus, asking questions we've already answered for him. which is a really dangerous place to be as people. And here's why, you know, because if behind your questions is this deep desire for something other than the truth that Jesus gives, you're going to miss out on untold wisdom on how to navigate some of the most difficult situations in your life. You'll grasp for hope, but you're always going to find it's elusive if you're not looking for truth but something less. 
your life is going to feel like a chasing after the wind, and you may even just miss out on Jesus himself. So, I mean, the question, I guess, we're, this is a morning of questions. The question we should ask ourselves is, how do we know when we're asking genuine questions, right? How do you know you're genuinely looking for truth and not something less? I think the good news is that we're not the first people to wrestle with this. It's not like this is a Western problem. This isn't an American problem. America. This isn't, um, you know, a millennial problem. Everybody reminds us, reminds me of. Hey, millennial. No, it's not just a millennial problem. It's a Gen X problem. It's a boomer problem. And it's not just a modern problem. This is a human problem. And Matthew, what he does here, who walked and talked with Jesus, right? Matthew, he invites us into two conversations where people come to Jesus with loaded questions over two really hot topics. And here's what we're going to find. We'll find that the litmus test of any genuine question is how you respond to Jesus' answer. The litmus test to any genuine question is how you respond to Jesus' answer. All right? So if you haven't already, let's, let's explore that together in your Bibles or Bible apps in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And it's there, as Carl read for us this morning, um, we find this group of religious leaders called the Pharisees, and they kind of team up with this group of political leaders called the Herodians, although that's probably too harsh of a divide in the first century. Religion and politics often went hand in hand, as they still do today. Um, and they begin kind of whiteboarding how they can trap Jesus. And what's so fascinating, it's like any good hunter, they camouflage their trap with this colorful language of flattery at Jesus, right? They try to entice him in. Okay, this isn't anywhere in my notes, but I've got to tell you, I've got this mouse problem, okay? Oh, oh yeah. When it's been pooping all over your chairs, you don't say that anymore, okay? <laughs> you come and you're like, again in the kid's seat? Mouse poop. Um, listen, you do everything you can to catch this sucker. You do, and I can't figure it out. People talk about the difference between city mice and country mice. This city mouse has got it figured out. It's brilliant. I've tried everything. I've watched so many YouTube videos. I digress, okay? These Pharisees are trying to capture Jesus like he's a pest. And he keeps slipping through their fingers like this little ornery city mouse, okay? And so they, they do everything they can and they lay out the bait. And here's the bait. They say, well, then tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, when I read that question um, the first time, I, I have to be honest, I was like, this is the hardest question you've got, an either or, a yes or no, because there are two things that are always certain in life, right? Death and taxes, you know? And so the question is, are you going to pay taxes? Come on. Are you libertarian? What's going on here? Um, well, the Pharisees, they weren't asking about what was legal according to the Roman Empire. They're asking what is legal according to the Old Testament law, what is right according to God, okay? And so in other words, they're saying, does God want us to pay taxes to this pagan ruler or not? And this isn't just any pagan ruler. This is a pagan ruler who's been extremely brutal to God's people. He's been abusive to God's people. He murdered some of the Jews and intermixed their blood with pagan sacrifices in God's sacred temple in Jerusalem. I mean, this guy is the worst. And so this question, it had the potential to really put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. On the surface, there were two potential answers, right? Right? And, and with either of these answers, 
um, it would align Jesus with either the revolutionaries or Rome, okay? Those are the two surface answers. And here's how. He could either take the stance of the later zealots, you know, as the name they were known for, who held that there was no king but God, and say, no, it's not right to pay tax to this kind of Caesar. And so throw off all shackles of authority. And he would be seen then, Jesus would be seen as a revolutionary. And the Herodians, who were there to uh, keep the peace with Rome, would have Jesus arrested then and there. Right then and there. This would be an easy trap if he would just say, no, we're not going to pay taxes to the Caesar, who's brutal and a pagan. On the other hand, if Jesus were to say, yes, it's right to pay taxes to the Caesar, then he would be seen as a heretic. He could have been seen as a traitor or maybe worse, a Roman sympathizer, right? Supporting this oppressive regime. And then it could, it could have possibly by chance ruined all of his followership, which Jesus has never really been worried about, to be honest with you, if you've studied any of what he's said up, up to this point. But, so those are the two, the two answers he could have given. But listen, Jesus, when we're driven by different motives, Jesus is never trapped by our questions, is he? He knows they aren't looking for the truth. And in verse 18, Matthew says what? That Jesus was aware of their malice. Aware of their malice. They wanted something less than true, good, and beautiful. They wanted, their desires were twisted, is another way of saying that. They wanted what was less, what was wicked. And so Jesus, he calls them out. You know, he's like, why are you trying to test me? What you got on me? He asked them for the coin used to pay the temple tax. And uh, so they hand him this denarius, which has Tiberius's face on it, as you see above me. And Jesus asks, okay, whose who's likeness and inscription is on this? And they say Caesar's. And then Jesus says what has become foundational to every Christian's perspective when it comes to approaching the government. As Christians, we are little Christs. We follow not just and rest in the grace that comes from the cross, but we follow the teachings of Jesus. Peter echoes this response in his letters. Paul elaborates on this response in his letters. And the early church embraced it where Jesus says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, Jesus says, here's your answer, okay? I know Caesar's a pagan. I know he's awful. I know he can be brutal, but still be a good citizen. Pay your taxes, respect authority, but human authority has its limits. Human authority has its limits. And when Caesar claims what is God's alone, God's claims on us have first priority. And maybe, maybe you're asking, how does this work itself out? Well, thankfully, we're not left actually to mystery there either. If you go to the book of Acts, the early chronicle of the early church, Peter and John they understood this, and they live out this teaching. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he had charged his followers to what? In Matthew 28, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, the end of Matthew 28. So they hear this command. They know what Christ has called them, commanded them to do. But the religious leaders and the council in Jerusalem command Peter and John to stop proclaiming the gospel. You've got to stop going around. Actually, because this gospel shames the, the, the political authorities in that day as well. You crucified him, <laughs> which is a bit shameful towards the governmental structures. And so they say, you've got to stop talking about this Jesus. And what does Peter say? 
Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so they just keep on proclaiming, and they keep on shouting the gospel, despite the governmental pressure to stop, until finally they're called into the council again. And you know what they say in Acts chapter 5, when they're, well, we told you to stop proclaiming. Why do you continue to proclaim? And Peter once again says, we must obey God rather than men. So they understood that Yes, there is a place for respect and authority of the governmental structures. This isn't a call to tyranny and chaos and anarchy. But there is a place where government has its limits. And what God has to say about our lives should take precedence in first place. Render to God what is God's, right? And so this wisdom of Jesus here, it's continued to guide God's people in terms of respecting government while also respecting its boundaries. And what's brilliant about this answer is that it promotes peace In cordiality, it's a way of loving your neighbor as well as loving your enemy, potentially. That's absolutely brilliant. While also putting good safeguards that it doesn't become our God. And so Jesus doesn't find himself in the camp of Rome or the revolutionary, but he finds a third way, an answer that is both timely and timeless for God's people. But how do, the, how do the Pharisees and the Herodians respond to Jesus' answer? This is really important. Look with me here at verse 22. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Now, this is, this is really interesting. If you know the, the gospel account of Matthew, time and again when people come to Jesus approaching, asking a question, and they find the answer in Jesus, what happens? They drop their nets and they follow him. They pick up their mat and they follow him. But here, the Pharisees, they're marveled. They're amazed at Jesus' brilliance. But look at the emphasis and the repetition. Matthew doesn't just say they walk away. He makes it twice over. They left him and they went away. Don't miss this. It's not about following Jesus. It's not about pursuing the truth. Their question wasn't really a question. So what do we see from this? What do we learn about our own questions right here? How do you know you're looking for less than truth? Here's the litmus test of a genuine question to Jesus. If Jesus' answer only impresses you but never changes you, then you aren't looking for truth. If Jesus' answer, it's, it's, wow, that's really fascinating, but it doesn't change anything about you, then you aren't looking for truth. Don't fool yourself. If you can, like the Pharisees and the Herodians, be pretty amazed at what Jesus says, find it thought-provoking, but you just walk away, then you weren't looking for truth. You might have been looking for affirmation. You might have been looking for accomplishment, but it wasn't truth. Because if it was truth, Jesus' brilliance would draw you in. It would be like oxygen in an oxygen, you you know, vacant world when you finally can take a deep breath and feel like that tastes like life. And you want to know how to live life in light of everything he has to say now, if you're looking for truth. Do you find yourself pondering Jesus' words but not being changed by them? If Jesus' words merely impress you but never change you, don't be fooled. You're not searching for truth with your questions. But there's more here. Another way um, in which we think we're looking for truth, but we're actually looking for something less. This is a good litmus test. The next group that comes to Jesus are the Sadducees. And Matthew 
he lets us know kind of what's their, their big group shtick, right? They don't believe that anyone ever will get resurrected. So this life is all you got. So you better make the most of it in one sense or another. The Sadducees, they were kind of like the liberals of their day. And they come with their own question. It goes something like this. Hey, teach. Moses, he gave us a command, you know, a law that if a man dies without having kids with his wife, and I know this feels weird to us as modern people, right? (laughs) If you weren't modern, it probably was weird at the first. Then his brother has to marry her and try to have kids with her so that there's someone to take care of the inheritance, someone to carry on the family name, and for someone, children to care for her in her old age. So let's just say there's this brother, and he dies before he has kids with his wife. So he hands, him, hands her off to her, his, youngest, his next youngest brother. She, he marries her, but he dies before they can have kids together. So he hands her off to the third brother. And this goes on for seven brothers, and then she dies. <laughs> and then everybody's resurrected. Whose wife is she really when they're all standing around awkwardly shuffling their feet at the resurrection, right? <laughs> Now, there's an assumption in this question that Jesus doesn't affirm. There's an assumption that the resurrection life is exact, an exact imprint of the life that we have today, okay? And they're building and building off of this assumption. So, if that's the assumption, there are three possible answers that Jesus can give. Either one, the woman is guilty of incestuous marriages because all these guys are still going to be alive. Or two, she's arbitrarily assigned to one of these guys. Does that feel very fair to her or to the other husbands? Or thirdly, and of course, this is their biggest notion of all, isn't the resurrection an absurd idea? And you got to love Jesus' response right out out of the gate here in verse 29. Like, Jesus does not mince words with these guys. He says, you're wrong. (laughs) Like, you know, you can look in the Greek, it's the same thing. You're wrong. Um... Why? Because you don't know the scriptures. You say you know Moses. And you really have this clunky imagination on what what God's power is like. Okay? And then Jesus goes on to talk about how the scriptures clear teaching on the subject of resurrection. I mean, Jesus feels like this is a very, very clear subject throughout the scriptures. (laughs) It doesn't mean that God will raise the dead to live the exact same kind of existence we live today. And in verse 30, we get a window into that. Jesus says this, For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And this is really important. You know, if you've ever been to a funeral, this can sometimes be misconstrued. That doesn't mean we become angels, okay? And now I become your guardian angel. Like that, that theology is nowhere in Scripture, okay? But we become like angels. In one specific way, he's talking. Our sexual relationships and marriage as we know it, will change. Such that even the most intimate relationship in marriage, the most flourishing relationship uh, of marriage, is going to give way to something more life-giving, more intimate, more beautiful than even the best marriage we know. Now, listen, for some of you, I I know you're relieved by that news. (laughs) Uh, Others of you, that terrifies you because you love your marriage, you love your spouse. Either way, Jesus' is, teaching this morning, it reminds us that your marital status is not the most important thing about your life. Marriage is beautiful, but it's not forever. And singleness, with its appropriate handmaiden, celibacy, right? They're beautiful. And they actually give us a picture as to what's to come. Not the full picture, but a beautiful picture of what's to come. 
there's a day coming where pure intimacy and pure innocence that surpasses marriage will be shared by every one of God's people. Every one of God's people. And it won't be tainted with our concepts of immorality or sin or selfishness or isolationism. It'll be absolutely beautiful, perfect, right, and community will scream intimacy and belonging and wholeness. And then Jesus brings this slam dunk when you get down to verse 31, when he says, and as for the resurrection of the dead, didn't God tell Moses, yeah, Moses, that you just threw his name in the ring, you tried to drop his name, yeah, Moses, yeah, that name, didn't he write this down in the scriptures, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. You, you've read that, right? Like he's, he's actually kind of condescending in this response. He, he isn't God of the dead, but of the living. Chrysostom, he's one of the theologians from the fourth century, and he comments on this passage, and it's, it's a brilliant statement. He says, God never said, I was. Instead, God says, I am. And God is saying this to Moses long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. But according to God, it's not as if that was just a past reality. According to God, they are alive to him. I am in the present the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. The resurrection's coming and it's going to change everything. The scriptures testify it testify to it, and, and not even death can stop God's blessings from coming to his people. And what an amazing thought. Doesn't that just kind of give you goosebumps when you start thinking about it? When you start wrestling through the imaginative realities of what could be in God's goodness, it makes you just want to start praising God. And yet, what do we find? We find the crowd is amazed, which is kind of similar to what the Pharisees were when they were marveled, when they marveled. But the Sadducees, were they blown away? Were they convinced or convicted or converted or at least, were at least they astounded by the thoughtfulness of Jesus' answer? No, we actually look down in verse 34 and we see that they were, quote unquote, silenced. <laughs> That's a pretty daunting word. Actually, this word silenced, another way to translate that word in the more metaphorical meaning is that they were muzzled. So if you look in the Greek, silenced and muzzled, they can both be translated that way, okay? And you know the only reason why a dog is muzzled? Because it only knows how to bark and bite. It's aggressive in defending what it knows. It's never open to getting to know new things, to new people. Its whole agenda is don't come near my turf. There are no warm licks of affection and welcome with a dog with this disposition. So how do you know you're looking for truth or something less or you're living in a defensive posture rather than open to the answers that Jesus has to our questions? Here's the second litmus test. If Jesus' answer only silences you but never leads to praise, then you aren't looking for truth. If Jesus' answer only silences you but it never leads to praise... It never leaves you astounded by Jesus' brilliance and his power and what is to come. Then you aren't looking for truth. You are looking to win. You are looking for affirmation. 
If you're unwilling like the Sadducees to hear what the scriptures have to say about things beyond your experience or even that are contrary to your experience, then Jesus' answers, no matter how brilliant they are, no matter how hopeful, no matter how beautiful, will only silence you instead of leading you to praise. You weren't looking for truth, which is so much bigger than our experience. Because if you were looking for truth, then Jesus' answer here, it would awaken your imagination, that, that hunger that you have deep within you, that you know that there's something more to this life. It would find resonance, and you, would, you wouldn't be able to muzzle your longings to hear more from him. But if Jesus' answer, it only silences you rather than leads to praise, then you aren't looking for truth. Don't try to fool yourself. And I think those are two helpful litmus tests when we're seeking to understand, do you want the truth or something less? And maybe, maybe this morning, whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or you're beginning to explore who Jesus is and you're coming with this host of questions, you're beginning to realize that you fit a lot more in this category, that you're coming, with Je coming to Jesus with your answers, looking for affirmation rather than your questions looking for truth. If so... It's not hopeless. This is the beauty of the gospel, that those who are the furthest away still have the possibility because of God's work in Christ to come home. And so what can we do to begin seeking truth rather than something less? What, what does it take to ask genuine questions? Well, here's your first step. Be honest about what you really want. Be honest about what you really want. Do you want the truth? Even if it means you're wrong, even if it means your whole life has been oriented around something that will destroy you and you have to finally admit it. Why are you asking the questions you're asking? Can you be honest with yourself there? What are you hoping the answer will be? What motivates your curiosity? Because listen, the why behind every question informs what you hear. The why behind every question informs what you hear, what you can hear, and this is even true of one of the biggest questions we wrestle through, the question, is there a God or not? You know, Thomas Nagel, a prominent American philosopher who would call himself an atheistic secularist, he wrote a book on how we know what we know, epistemology, and it's called Last Word. In it, he's brutally honest, which I just, I so respect, about how he wants a world, like wants a world without God. Listen to what he writes. I want atheism to be true. I want it, okay? And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. I am curious whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God. He's brutally honest about his desires. And listen, everyone, everyone who's honest in their inquiries knows that there are deep psychological and emotional reasons for believing what we believe, for looking for the answers that we want. And not even Thomas Nagel can say, hey, look, I'm completely indifferent, I'm completely objective, in answering the question as to whether God exists or not. We all have things that we want that inform how we hear. So whether it's questions about sexual identity, whether it's questions about money, 
the church, or even Jesus himself, one of the best things you can do to come to a greater objectivity in seeking the truth is to be honest about what you really want. Just put that on the table. This is what I want. And then, when you come to approach Scripture, ask God to help you want what's true because you cannot overcome your own wants without His help. You cannot overcome your own wants without his help. I mean, the Pharisees, Herodians, and Sadducees, what did they want? They wanted power. They liked life the way it was before Jesus showed up. And Jesus was just a pest. And so their questions weren't questions. They wanted to make Jesus seem unsmart. They felt threatened, and so they wanted to make Jesus look uneducated, uninformed, foolish, but they didn't want truth. And after you're honest about what you want, you're going to have to ask God to help you want what's true. Ask him in prayer to lift the cultural blinders. I mean, because listen, there are things that our grandparents were really passionate about that we feel very uncomfortable with. There are things that if God graces you to have grandchildren, that they're going to look back at you and you're going to feel very convicted about and they're going to think you're an idiot. Be aware of your cultural blinders. Don't let your biases take first place in your heart. But you can't do that without God's help. And this is one of the reasons God sent his Holy Spirit. John, Jesus says this in the, John, the gospel account of John, that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. You're not left alone here. Jesus knows that we're incapacitated by our desires for brokenness. Our twisted desires for what we think will comfort us but will ultimately destroy us. We can't do this on our own, and we need God to open our eyes. So trust his promise and ask his spirit to help guide you into all truth. And then lastly, get to know Jesus. Get to know Jesus. First, be honest about what you really want. Ask God to help you want what's true, and then get to know Jesus. Because he said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. I am convinced that all truth is God's truth, and if you genuinely pursue the truth, it will lead you to Jesus. It will. If you genuinely want truth, it will lead you to Jesus. If you're chasing after truth. And if you want to know the truth, explore the truth, grow in the truth, then get to know him. Read the gospels, study his life and his words, let him show you. Listen, anyone who tells you that he's going to die and then rise again and then does it, and some 500, pe 500 people who totally abandoned him on the cross suddenly are willing to give their lives for a proclamation that they saw him alive, he deserves our inquiry at the very least. So get to know Jesus. And all that because, listen, I'm absolutely confident that what is true is best in the end. What is true is best in the end. Is there a cost? Oh, always. Okay, economists, you know, they, when, when they, they have a term for this, actually. When you look at even competing goods, to choose one thing over others, you have to have an opportunity cost, is what it's called. Every decision you make comes with an opportunity cost. But listen, when you commit to the truth and you commit to Jesus, this is what you're committing to. When you say yes to what's true, you're saying no to lying to yourself that the ache for eternity is some sort of evolutionary mishap. 
When you say yes to seeking what is true, you're saying no to the belief that your experience is all that there is. When you're saying yes to seeking what is true, you're saying no to meaninglessness. Those are things I'm willing to sacrifice. Of course, there are other things in every decision, sure, that are painful in reality, but there's so much good ahead of us. And someone who knows this path well is the poet John Donne. Born into a family of well-known Catholic martyrs, and despite being deeply entrenched in his Catholic faith, in his early years, Don, uh, Don apostatized, and he converted to the Protestant Christian faith. It's here during this tumultuous time in his life when he was wrestling with what is true, when he's asking these questions about what's true, that he writes what's become some of the greatest masterpieces in poetry, his holy sonnets. His sonnets, which actually which is a fun fact, are not only the inspiration for Kelly Cruz's art that surrounds us here this, e or this morning. And if you had a chance to come to the artist dinner on Monday, Kelly really detailed out John Donne's story of, of beautiful, authentic faith as he sought to follow after the truth and so know Jesus. And what you find in his poetry, in his sonnets, are, are this wrestling with life's biggest questions, his wrestling with what what he really wanted, his wrestling as he asked God for his help, his wrestling, and what you find is some of the deepest meditations on Jesus as well. He was honest about what he really wanted. He asks God for help continuously. And he was sought to get to know Jesus. And the result is beauty, isn't it? Rich and lasting beauty, words of which, if you don't have one of these books, we've got a few left over there over the guest table that have the sonnets and Kelly's great work in detailing out the question that John was seeking to answer. John and I are on a first name basis, by the way. And, and listen to the beauty of these words, words like this, death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. Or a little bit later in Holy Sonnet 10, one short sleep past, we wake eternally. And death shall be no more. Death shalt die. This is the result of pursuing truth, finding good, and relishing in beauty. But that's only when we ask the question of our questions. Do you want what's true or something less? You see, what's true is always best in the end. It's more beautiful, it's more good, more pleasing, and more comforting than any lie we try to tell ourselves. And if, if that's what truth does, can you imagine what God's going to make of us as we pursue truth? I genuinely believe he will make this community into paintings, into, into a work of art that all of Kansas City will stand in awe of what God has done. So hear me this morning, come. Come with your questions, but be honest. Be honest about your answer to the question behind every question. Do you want the truth or something less? The ultimate litmus test is how you respond to Jesus' answer, especially when it isn't the answer you want. So chase truth, no matter the cost, because it's always better in the end, okay? Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. How its truth goes forth. How it has stood the test of time. And how it continues to form us and guide us into people of truth. People who know 
good and can discern good from evil, good from bad. People who can rest in beauty and find wonder and awe in the window into eternity that it so often invites. But God, most of all, we're thankful that your word became flesh and dwelt among us. That in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you have freed us from sin and bondage. And when he ascended to heaven, he has sent the counselor, the Holy Spirit, to guide us into all truth if we will but yield to him. So guide us as people individually and as a community together to pursue truth at all costs. And thank you that you haven't left us to figure this out on our own. May we be faithful in pursuing what you have given us. In Jesus' name.